Welcome to another edition of the Urantia Radio Podcast. My name is Jim Watkins, longtime reader and student of the Fifth Epical Revelation. And we've got a number of things we're going to talk about on this edition. Number one, we're going to talk about a paper that I'm working on that talks about the contributions of Adam and Eve. So we'll get into that a little bit. Also, uh, some updates on other business that we've been doing here at the Urantia Radio Podcast. And then we're going to get down and dirty on the subject of water. Water, an interesting subject that has a lot of intersectionality with the Urantia book. And we'll get to that having to do with life on other worlds. So all this and more coming up on the Urantia Radio Podcast. Also want to thank the folks over at the Urantia Foundation for allowing me to make a presentation and as part of their Spotlight series. So, jo- Joanne Strobel, thank you so much. I'm humbled by your invite. And if you want to see the end result of what we talked about last Saturday, if you go to the Urantia Foundation website, which is urantia.org, look for the Spotlight series videos, and you can see what we talked about with regards to mental illness and the Urantia book. It's, uh, I think, very interesting information, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. And I want to thank again the folks over at the Foundation for allowing me to host this past Saturday. So, so much to talk about, so much to discuss, and we will do so in just a second. got a good range of topics that we're going to talk about this time on the Arantia Radio podcast. That's some music here for those who are into this kind of music. Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. It's pretty well known in India. Somebody turned on, turned on an album years ago called uh, Night Songs. And I'd say about half the album is just pretty amazing. And then some of it is very, almost leaning more towards traditional Indian music. So if you enjoy that kind of music, Nusrat Bata Ali Khan. And welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast. Uh, I drafted an article recently. I took a bold attempt to try to explain, in my own words, uh, how Adam and Eve and their influence played out over the millennia. And, uh, and I put it to pen. I wrote it. It took about an hour to write. And, and then I put it away. I, I, okay, I know that I'm probably never going to publish this because, you know, I, I, mean, I don't think that the world is ready to hear about Adam and Eve and, and what their progeny was. I could have a private discussion with anybody about it, but I, I don't know if the masses would be ready because today everything is very contentious. When you talk about race or gender, very contentious. You step on the wrong rock and you're going to slip and fall in the river. And it could end up ruining a friendship. Or it could start a very heated discussion. And, you know, the old saying, in in an argument, the truth is lost. And then you forget the whole. And this is part and parcel why, why I think a lot of people stay away from the racial element of the Arantia book, because the Arantia book, in the part three series of books, attempts to explain where these six Sangeek races came from, how they all merged, uh, emerged from the same family, over 19 children born in one family, and each had kids that 
represented the, the full spectrum of, of colored races. You had the yellow, you had the red, you had the orange, you had the green, you had the blue, and then ultimately the uh, what they call the indigo. And those were the six original races. But they had already been in existence for quite a bit of time by the time Adam and Eve had showed up. Now I'm paraphrasing my paraphrasing. Uh, the question I have for you is, is this the time where maybe many human beings might be curious enough to know why it is we have the dis discord that we have today between the races? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding that would be cleared up. Because my thesis is that while some of the Sangiks enjoyed much greater benefit, it put other races at a clear disadvantage. Because you had the majority of the blue race and, and many of the red and the yellow. Well, not so much the red because they had already migrated pretty much over to North America by the time Adam and Eve made their appearance on, on the pages of human history. And consequently, development of species occurred at a greater pace, that you could say, in certain areas of the world, and not so much in others, for a whole host of reasons, not only genetic, but also environmental. And that is the way that we can look at this conundrum that we have as to why were certain races oppressed for a, a period of time and others not so much. And I think the Adamic story really opens up the discussion that it's really not anybody's fault. It's just the way the cards were laid, but we can make up for that lost time. Um, you know, I, I refer to it, but my son a few years ago got me this wonderful wall map, which is a timeline of human history broken down by period, kingdom, continent, and clearly it shows that human evolution accelerated greatly in the Mesopotamian region, some areas of China, and certainly some areas later on in the European region of, of the world. And it is consistent with the Urantia book explaining how the genetic influence of Adam and Eve played itself out over time. And the question I have is, are we ready to hear that truth? Would it help us understand how the different races sort of split up. And in, in today, how it all played out. And what, what do we look forward to in the future? What can we learn about this from the future? Because obviously Adam and Eve were sent here. They were put on this race, uh, this earth. They, they were supposed to make a mighty contribution. So if you're interested, I will send you the article privately. Because uh, I trust the people who listen to this podcast. I think they're pretty smart. I'll send you an advanced version of it. Just email me, urantiabook at gmail.com. Radio, sorry. Radio at gmail.com. And uh, I'll send you the preview of the article in a PDF. And then you could tell me whether or not you think it's, it's worthy of being posted on the Urantia Radio website. Because the last thing I want to do is create a stir or you know, create a hornet's nest. I don't want to bring a negative light because people today, like I say, they're, they're much more sensitive to any discussion about race or gender. And um, 
And that's not what this is about. This is not about stirring that up uh, or making any kind of declaration, speaking on behalf of the Arantia Revelators. I don't need to do that. But I do think the Adamic story would go a long way to helping, helping us appreciate uh, how much of an effect that they had on our, on our race and on our culture. I also want to mention to you that the Arantia Foundation was gracious enough to allow me to appear on their Spotlight series, and they have those every month, and I encourage you to check them out. Uh, and it runs on the weekend, usually for about half an hour or so. Anyway, they took the presentation that I had uh, produced on the mental illness aspect of the Arantia book and how the Arantia book addresses the subject of mental illness. And um, so it's on the Arantia Foundation Spotlight series website. Just go to Arantia.org. And I'm sure you'll find it there. Um, and so thank you to the foundation and particularly Joanne Strobel. And also a shout out to Brother Josh for, for helping me fine tune the data and the overall presentation. And I got an opportunity to meet a lot of folks, hopefully some of them, that I'll be able to bring on this podcast in future episodes. So another interesting thing that came up this week, and I want to kind of delve into this a little bit, is... The idea of water. Now, uh, my good friend Joel Garbin, who's been on the program numerous times, and he's kind of a science guy, he sent me this article, and if you listen to this program, you know that I'm a big fan of astronomy. And in the article, it talks about how, with the advances of the James Webb Telescope and some other recent advances in, in science and astronomy technology, they've decided that the best way to look for exoplanets around us in our galaxy is before they used and they depended on a lot of what they call this tidal event so that if a large planet was passing through the uh, the equatorial path of the, their solar sun, we could detect whether or not there are large planets that circle some of these suns that are nearby or far away. And But we weren't getting anywhere. It seemed like we were always finding the same conundrum, which would be planets that are either too small or, or too large, not much of a rotation, they're too close to the sun, too hot, or they'd be too far away, too far away from the sun. And so we have this idea in astronomy and astrophysics that the Goldilocks, and I'm sure you've heard of that, the Goldilocks premise is we try, we try to find planets that are just right that they're just the right distance where they can have water, they can have an atmosphere, not too cold, not too hot, uh, hence the Goldilocks zone. Anyway, so uh, now they've come across a new technique in which they're looking for certain uh, chemical compounds that would represent water. Astronomers now believe that water is a better guide to finding planets with a certain signature. And they think that, and there are not a lot of details coming out about this, but I think it's exciting from an Urantia book point of view because the Urantia book is, um, is front and center. It, it has entire chapters dedicated to the different kinds of life forms that evolve on all kinds of planets, most of them being satellites to other planets that are themselves satellites to a, a singular or double solar parent. So, for example, it's more likely that we would find a habitable sphere of life 
orbiting a larger planet orbiting the sun rather than orbiting the sun directly. And lo and behold, the Arantia book makes this declaration. Our Earth is the exception to the rule. Usually a life-bearing planet would find itself in close proximity to, say, a planet like Jupiter or Saturn, and it would receive enough light and heat from both the larger sphere that it circles and the solar parent. That's the normal process, according to the Arantia book. And now our astronomers are, trying to fig are, are figuring that out as well, that it's much more probable that life would exist on a world that circles a larger sphere, like a moon. Isn't that wonderful? And now they're going to go after this with looking for water signatures. So I wanted to go into the Arantia book uh, and look up water, just because sometimes that's what I do. And let me see what I can share with you here. Here are some quotes about water from the Arantia book. It says, the entire science of, and it goes off onto different directions, so I'll, I'll try to make some sense of this. In this particular paper, which is, I think, paper seven, they're talking about how water is a great example of how why sometimes science gets things wrong. Uh, and, and the dogmatic nature of science sometimes gets in the way of our own discovery of just how unique the universe really is. So for as an example, they say the entire science of mathematics, the whole domain of philosophy, the highest physics of chemistry, could not predict or know that the union of two gaseous hydrogen atoms with one gaseous oxygen atom would result in a new and qualitatively super-additive substance, liquid water. The understanding knowledge of this one physiochemical phenomenon should have prevented the development of materialistic philosophy and mechanistic cosmology. He goes on to say in, in paper 12, section 9, paragraph 4, technical analysis does not reveal what a person or a thing can do. For example, water is used effectively to extinguish fire. The water will put out fire is a fact of everyday experience. But no analysis of water could ever be made to disclose such a property. Analysis determines that water is composed of hydrogen and oxygen. A further study of these elements discloses that water is the real supporter of combustion and that hydrogen will free itself freely burn. So there you have an example of how why science can never actually, with complete success, prove any, anything. We can't assume anything. This whole debate about climate change is wrapped around one theory, whether or not carbon, more of it, less of it, and the impact that it has on an environment. But science has not settled on this, even though that's, you know, a debate we could have somewhere else. But there are plenty of scientists who will argue that carbon and an abundance of carbon is, is the source of life. All right, so back to this paper 15. Uh, this where it gets, this where it talks about water elsewhere in the universe. This is pretty interesting. It says, the super universe of Orvinson is illuminated and warmed by more than 10 trillion blazing suns. These suns are the stars of your observable astronomic system. More than 2 trillion are too distant and too small even to be seen from Urantia. Now that was written in 1934. 
But in the master universe, there are as many suns as there are glasses of water in the oceans of your world. So I, I had to do what I had to do. I had to go to Google. And Google tells me that there are 326 million trillion glasses of water on our planet. Isn't that amazing? 326 million trillion multiplied by eight glasses. So, you know, you do the math. That's a whole lot of water and that's a whole lot of sun. And that, it, I, I've said this before, think about how many billions and trillions of suns there are. And each one of those suns, aggregated as a whole, represents just the physical aspect of deity. Now on to the subject of water itself. The physical plant life and the marancha world of living things both require moisture. But this is largely supplied by the subsoil system of circulation, which extends all over the sphere. And they're talking specifically about Jerusalem. The water systems is not entirely subsurface. For, that, for there are many canals interconnecting the sparkling lakes of Jerusalem. So water on Jerusalem is the same as water here. The atmosphere of Jerusalem is a three-gas mixture. This air is very similar to that of our world, Urantia, with the addition of a gas adapted to the respiration of the Marancha order of life. The third gas in no way unfits the air for the respiration of animals or plants of the material orders. That's what we have to look forward to on Jerusalem. Though you have Marancha bodies, you continue through all seven of the mansion worlds to eat, drink, and eat, and rest. You partake of the Marancha order of food, a kingdom of living energy unknown on the material worlds. Both food and water are fully utilized in the Marancha body. There is no residual waste. Pause to consider that Mansonia number one, the first mansion world, is a very material sphere presenting the early beginnings of the Marancha regime. You are still near human and not far removed from the limited viewpoints of mortal life. But each world discloses definite progress. From sphere to sphere, you grow less material, more intellectual, and slightly more spiritual. The spiritual progress is greatest on the last of the three seven of the seven progressive worlds, the seven mansion worlds. But we know one thing. We know that water exists and it will continue to exist. And I find that pretty fascinating, don't you? That's going to do it for this episode of the Arantia Radio Podcast. I look forward to our next episode. And as always, if there's something that you want to have us discuss or talk about here on this program, Radio at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.